Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Gene Marks, and this is season two of the Paychecks Business Series podcast. I am a certified public accountant, regular business columnist for a bunch of publications you may know, like uh, The Guardian, The Washington Times, The Philadelphia Inquirer, Forbes and Entrepreneur, uh, oh, and The Hill. But most importantly, I'm a small business owner of a financial and technology management services company. I've teamed up with Paychecks, the leading provider of human resources, payroll benefits, and insurance services to bring you real-life stories and advice from real-life business owners and experts. Now, last season, we talked about the challenges associated with COVID. Uh, A lot of those challenges haven't gone away, unfortunately. But this season, we're focusing on moving forward and innovating and navigating the road to full recovery. I'm really excited today to bring on my special guest, Sarah Morgan. Sarah is the founder and chief excellence officer of Buzz Aruni LLC. Sarah, thanks for joining us. I'm really glad. First of all, what is Buzz Aruni LLC? So um, I work with small businesses and startups on creating inclusive workplace culture. So that's what I do as the CEO of Buzz Aruni LLC. The company is actually named for my, my childhood nickname that was given to me by my father. Um, I was a nosy little kid who buzzed around and touched everything and asked all the questions. And so um, when I decided to, to put my business into an LLC and, and name it officially, I wanted to both honor him and honor my, my curious three-year-old self um, that touched all the things and asked all the questions because that's a large part of what I do in consulting is is asking those inconvenient questions and digging down into the the real weeds and details of what's happening um, as we try to create more inclusive workplaces. And so I wanted to just make sure to consistently remind myself to be that curious kid all over again. Very cool. So, you know, so Sarah, so look, my... um, my business, I have about 600 small and medium-sized clients for my firm, and they're mostly in the Philadelphia area. That's where I'm out of, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, they're honestly, and I've been working with these people for like 20 plus years. You know, the average age and, and demographic of the U.S. small business owner is, 50, is a 52-year-old white man. Wow. Um, and when I go around to my clients, that demographic plays itself out all the time. You know, these are people running family-owned businesses, distributors, manufacturers from industrial parks and office complexes, you know, all around that, uh, you know, you walk in their offices and they have 10, 20, even 80 employees and honestly, like next to zero diversification. And I'm sure mm-hmm. you've seen that before. Yeah. What do you do when you, when you, you know, what are your thoughts on that for starters? My hope is that all organizations will seek to make sure that their organization represents the community that you live in and the the clients that you're seeking to service. And so particularly when you're talking about metropolitan cities of Philadelphia, of Raleigh, North Carolina, where I am, you have a ton of diversity in terms of the, the people who live there. Sure, of course. And so the hope would be that you would seek some of that talent pool um, in hiring for your own organization. But I know that with small businesses, what happens, we tend to make our first hires based on people we know and trust. And then we tend to hire based on referral um, as we move out from there. And so because it's 
unusual for people to have a large amount of diversity in their personal circles. When you start to hire referrals, you tend to get more of the same types of people. And then you look up and your organization isn't reflective of the community that it lives in and the community that it services. And so once you realize that as an organization, you just kind of have to take a step back and decide what you want to do about that. For some organizations, the answer is nothing. Um, the answer is that, that we're satisfied with how we're performing. We recognize that our organization is lacking in diversity, but it's not an intentional exclusion of anyone. And so we're going to you know, continue on as we've been doing. I don't recommend that, but I recognize that it's a way of thinking that is definitely out there. And for others, it becomes a, you know, we're not comfortable with this. And so then you have to be more intentional about diversifying where you recruit from and diversifying the slate of candidates that you consider when you have a role that's open and start to intentionally bring more diversity into your organization. And recognize that that doesn't mean that you're going to sacrifice quality of the individual. Um, that's probably one of the most cringy statements that I hear people make when it comes to hiring with diversity in mind. It's like, oh, I don't want to, to uh, you know, hire someone that's unqualified. Well, who would ever do that? <laughs> like, why is that even? Why does that even become? A consideration. We, you know, no, if you flip that statement around, you would never say, I don't want to hire some unqualified white guy. You know, you just right, assume course. that the people that you're going to hire are going to be qualified for the role or that they have a, a character about them that allows them to be trainable. And so you can, can take that same mentality and apply it to a candidate from a marginalized identity, whether that's a woman or whether that's a person of color. It's tough. Like you know, about a month or so ago, um, a CEO of a large bank, and I know, I know you know this story, mm -hmm. um, created a lot of controversy because he said, you know, in a Zoom meeting that uh, his bank was having trouble reaching their diversity goals because there just wasn't enough qualified minority talent. You know, yeah. what are yeah. your what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts when I hear. Um, organizations make statements like that is then is that you're not trying hard enough because candidates with marginalized identities, diverse candidates, whatever it is that you you choose to call them, are not hiding. You know they're in your ATS, um, but there is usually something either within your ATS and how you set up your screeners that are screening those individuals out, or your recruiting team who looks at your candidates are not properly um, trained and conditioned in how to identify your candidates that are from those communities, or you're not recruiting in the places where those communities tend to look for jobs. And so that is the reason why you're not finding them. But it's not an issue of there the, being not enough talent or not enough qualified talent. It, it is, 99% of the time not looking in the right places, not utilizing the tools that are available to you properly to find those individuals. Um, and we would never, and again, you know, going back to what I said before, like we would never 
use that same excuse on the flip side. You know, we would never um, use the excuse that we can't do a marketing campaign because we can't find, you know, the target market just isn't there. We would continue to seek ways to reach that target market. We would continue to look at way creative solutions to talk to, to reach the community that we're trying to reach. If we were trying to bring in clients from a specific demographic or a specific industry, we would look for ways to target our efforts to reach those individuals, to bring them into our funnel. But yet when it comes to recruiting candidates of color, women, so forth, we just say, oh, we can't find them, we give up. You know, and we have to just take the same energy, the same effort that we put towards doing those things and use it to think creatively about how we reach those communities. And if we can't come up with ideas, then we reach out to our network um, and we ask them for help and guidance on how to do that. Google is still a thing um, and you can still, you know, search for how to create that there, you know, articles and information abounds, good articles and information abounds on the internet that will tell you how to get started if, or how to, to overcome if you feel like you're struggling. Um, so it's, it's not that you just shrug your shoulders and give up. It's that you, you change your approach. If this is something that's really important to you. Um, and, and if it's not, then you give up. The, we all do better in environments that are diverse. To me, there are five areas where we can really have an impact on breaking down barriers between communities and, and creating a greater sense of camaraderie and culture and understanding um, across different groups. And the workplace is definitely one of them, along with churches and the media and schools um, being the others. But, you know, the workplace is, is definitely one of them. And for so long, we have taken this approach that people just check their bias, check their racism, their sexism, you know, all their phobias surrounding people and, and the ways that they live their life at the door that we don't actively try to sufficient, you know, often enough, um, try to promote appreciation of culture and try to get people to understand that. Um, and, and, and there is data that abounds on how much it benefits your organization to be diverse and to not only in the employees that work there, but then also in the demographic of business that you partner with and the type of customer that you have. And when organizations are more diverse, the employees have higher engagement, the employees have higher satisfaction, the employees have higher retention, the organizations are more profitable. I mean, this is, this is not just some kumbaya thought process of why it is that we should do this. It, the fact is that the organizations who are focused on diversity and alongside that equity and inclusion are far and away more successful 
than the organizations that are not. If that is not enough of a reason to get people to, to get on this train and ride it till the wheels fall off, I really don't know what else, you know, we can say about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, uh, first of all, you know, what I'm hearing from you is that companies, and correct me if I'm wrong, companies are, are in many cases being lazy about their diversification. They're not trying hard enough to find the right people. And they don't seem to be educated enough to understand the benefits of diversification. Um, and in fact, frankly, some of the companies that I work with, I know, uh, you know, their diversification efforts are more, you know, PR motivated than mm-hmm. actually trying to improve their business, you know, mm-hmm. but, but let me flip the coin. I mean, what about people in the black community and the Latino community? Do you think that um, those community members themselves could be doing more to go after, you know, those jobs and those opportunities to, you know, to, to make people in companies, both big and small, aware of the benefits of diversification. There are, um, my, my wife, she teaches at a private school and, you know, there's, there's a percentage of black kids that go to that school and they have, they, they have parents that were, um, just over and above aggressively seeking out scholarships and, and, and ways to get their kids into that school. Cause they knew that it's like a better school than their, their public neighborhood school. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. So they, they, they took it upon themselves to do that. And I wonder if you, you know, if, if there is some responsibility, if there's more that communities can be doing to help their members get jobs in companies and to help companies themselves realize the benefits of diversification. I think that all those efforts are already in existence. Um, if, if, in, if an organization posts a job and says that the way for you to um, be, you know, be successful in getting this job is to apply through the ATS system um, and you do that and then you end up getting screened out or you end up getting, you know, just pushed to the side in favor of a referral who may not have followed the same process then I don't really know what more, you know, it is that you could have done in that instance. Um, When you look at particularly Black women, we are worldwide the most educated group of individuals on the planet. And yet we continue to be underrepresented in organizations, underrepresented in management, directors, C-suite, executive level, board level within the org. So we're doing all of the things, we're getting the education, we're building the network, where in a lot of cases, at least you know, I can say from, from the people that I communicate with on a regular basis, reaching out through the LinkedIn's and so forth to try to express our interest and yet still getting looked over. For me, I am growing increasingly uncomfortable with the idea that it is the responsibility of the marginalized individual to remove themselves from the margin. Like I didn't put myself here. (laughs) So how then does it become my responsibility to remove my responsibility solely or my responsibility primarily to remove myself from a place I didn't put myself? 
you know, the, the playing field is not level and we all recognize that. And so those of us who set the playing field within our respective organizations, that's where the greater burden lies to make sure that we're doing the things to create the opportunities and to make sure that there's equitable access and opportunity with, within those opportunities for everyone to have a chance to come along. Um, and I'm not sure that we are, those of us in, in corporate positions, in recruiting roles and so forth, small business, medium-sized business, large business, what have you, are doing our part to make sure that those of us who have been marginalized are being given equal access, equal opportunity to come out of those margins when we do the things that we are supposed to do to bring ourselves out of those positions. And that's why there continues to be this push for mandates and things like that, which I know make people very uncomfortable, but unfortunately, in our country, in America in particular, we have found that organizations on their own don't move very fast in making these kinds of changes when, when there's not mandate and there's not penalty for it. And that's unfortunate, um, but that's just been, you know, the history of what we've done. We still would have kids working in factories if we hadn't put mandates in place because nobody was going to stop us from doing that because it was profitable for the organizations at the time, you know, to work that way, we would still have people working 60 hours a week with no overtime um, if we were left to our own devices. And so this issue of diversity, equity, inclusion, I think comes alongside like our, our traditional, what we see as the traditional labor movement. And I think it becomes kind of that modern piece of that. You know, you use the example of, of you know, workers and all that. I mean, even more relevant example, just, it, you know, there was the 1957 Civil Rights Act, which gave, you know, black people the right to vote down South and it didn't have any teeth in it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the 64 Civil Rights Act that really put forth federal backing and regulations behind it where you know counties and states particularly down south realize like well we have to do this so that's what gave you know way more uh the ability of black people to be able to vote so okay so you've convinced i mean there, there certainly is advantages to having a diverse workforce it is something that we should be trying to do more um the government itself should be should be doing some mandates to kind of push us into doing what you know is the right thing to do um, so let's, as I, as I kind of wrap this up though, I mean, and take your time though, I, you know, th let's be really specific. All right. So like, let's assume that you are running, a, I, I have a client in suburban Philadelphia. I'm, I mean, not in the city, but very close to the city, about a hundred employees, um, other than a bunch of, um, Hispanic, Hispanic and Latino workers in their factory, who are all family members and they all know each other in the same community. So they give each other, you know, they recommend jobs back and forth to each other. Um, I mean, not, not a single black person in the company, mm. you know? So, you know, if you were going to, if, if you were going to advise these guys, say they said like, all right, we do have an interest in, we do want to increase diversity. We do get it. Um, what would you tell them to do? And this applies not to some using Philly as the example, but I'm sure I mean, it's the same in Raleigh. It's the same in any big city. Mm -hmm. so what should they do? Start with partnering with whether it be um, colleges, alumni networks that 
with um, the historically black colleges and universities. If, if diversity with black people is what it is that you're looking for, you know that you're gonna find that there um, and being and specifically posting your jobs there um, and seeking to, to hire alumni of, of those universities. Um, you can also, I know the NAACP and the, um, oh, the name of the other organization, Urban League. The Urban League um, both have job boards where you can post positions to, again, to get to the candidates that you are trying to reach. Um, when you're dealing with referrals, it's, it's very easy. People are gonna refer their friends and their family and most of the time those individuals look like them. But when you're trying to find someone that you don't already have, you have to make an, a conscious effort to go into um, those, those communities and the places where those individuals tend to be looking for work and, and look for them. So start by, you know, instead of just posting in your normal places where you may post open positions or accepting referrals for um, an open position, say, no, this is absolutely going to be an outside candidate. And we're going to be posting, in addition to the normal places that we post our jobs, we're also going to be posting in, you know, these additional two or three cases in order to ensure that we diversify the slate of individuals um, who come to us. Um, and then once that happens, as you begin to go through and screen resumes, the same way that you would give priority to a referral candidate in terms of who gets interviewed and so forth, those places where you've spent extra dollars, the um, because some of those do have, you know, paid, if you've paid for an ad with the NAACP or you've paid for an ad, if you're in Philly, you've paid for an ad with the Cheney or, or a Delaware State or one or some other nearby um, HBCU that likely has alumni and students um, in your area, then those people are gonna get the priority because you've invested more in, in obtaining these candidates. And so you're looking at those individuals and then you know, comparing that to others and, and giving some priority to that in terms of the folks that you bring in to have them interview. Um, if it's possible, because again, it can be difficult when you have, uh, when you don't have diversity already, but if it's possible, add some diversity to the number of people who are doing the interviews um, so that you're not just allowing one single hiring manager who is accustomed to hiring from referrals or hiring, you know, their own friends and family, like don't give them the sole power to make that kind of decision. You might want to put a panel or a committee of individuals together so that you can have multiple voices in and, and buy-in um, into hiring for that role. And then from there, you know, you follow your normal interview and assessment process and extend your offer. And it's possible that at the end of all of that, the person that you select um, that you feel is going to be the ultimate fit for your organization or the, or the ultimate enhancement to the culture that you have already developed is not going to be a candidate of color. And that's okay. But at least you've made the effort to, to try to see what else is out there um, and what else is possible. And you've made the, you set the intention and follow through on that in making sure that you're considering all the options and just continue to do that until you you find your way. Sarah, why did you cry 
during the Fresh Prince reunion? <laughs> um, I was a big fan of the show. Um, in its original, I've watched the reruns over and over again with my family. And there were a few reasons. So first of all, like how sweet was it that this group of people, like there's so many shows that you watch where the actors behind the scenes didn't really have like love and, and care for one another. So to see this group of individuals come together after um, 30 years and that they still were genuinely happy to see each other, genuinely happy to be around each other, really had like care and fondness for one another was just so nice to see when, and again, in a lot of shows that you watch, there's so much, you find out later on that like behind the scenes, these two actors like hated each other. So that was great. I have, and having been a fan of the show, I, I knew about the um, first Aunt Viv, second Aunt Viv, and the, the drama surrounding the exit of um, Janet Hubert hit Witten when she left the show and the difficulties ongoing between her and Will Smith like for years like I've watched the videos and stuff and so to watch the two of them just take full accountability with each other for the ways in which they misunderstood each other and had caused you know hurt and harm to one another over the years and to just apologize and make peace was just so beautiful. I was so, so touched because we all have coworkers who we don't get along with and who, you know, we probably wouldn't spit on them if they were on fire. But when years go by and you get a little bit more age and you get a little bit more perspective, you come to understand that this person was probably hurting and I didn't do enough to support them. And how often in our lives do we take the opportunity or create the opportunity to like make that right. And so to see those two people do that and then to, to have that opportunity where she comes back and she's able to be like together with the whole cast to meet the person who took her job essentially and to show complete love and respect to each other that way was just so beautiful to me. And then lastly, the James Avery tribute. I mean, Uncle Phil was like everybody's uncle. And so just watching them talk about him and knowing that not only was he like that dad uncle figure to all of us who watched the show, but he was equally that to them as young actors coming up. Because again, how many of us go into our workplaces with that like elder statesman person who is like super curmudgeonly, won't share any wisdom with you. And this guy was the complete opposite of that. And so just to watch them like talk about how much he gave and poured into them, knowing that he's not here anymore. Like the whole thing was just so beautiful. So yeah, like I cried, like cried like snot bubbles, snot bubble tears. Like, yeah, it was a whole thing. You you have to, only you could come up with an HR angle to the reunions of Fresh Prince. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for sure. Sarah Morgan is founder and chief excellence officer of Buzz A. Rooney LLC. Sarah's website is buzzarooneyllc.com. That's B-U-Z-Z. A-R-O-O-N-E-Y-L-L-C.com. And you can follow her on Twitter 
at the buzz on HR. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. I have a bunch more questions for you as well. So I'd love to bring you back at some point. For sure. Uh, for sure. More. Thank you. This was great. Thank you for more great episodes from the Paychex Business Series podcast and other information to help you run your business. Please visit paychex.com forward slash works. That's W-O-R-X. I'm Gene Marks. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again soon. This podcast is property of Paychex Inc. 2020, all rights reserved.